where you going? No, man, you got the right classroom. Come on in, take a seat beside me, my friend. Hey, look, here come T.A. Charlie. Let's see what he got to say. I'm back. Did you miss me? Yes. Morning. You're watching The Road to Concord with Professor Joel Bakanovic. Homeroom is on Rumble. You just go to Rumble and you search the channels for The Road to Concord. It's one word. When you find it, you go ahead and you click follow. Might mean you got to set up an account, but it's fast, it's easy, it's free. I did it. You can do it. For those technologically challenged members of the class, you can also catch us on Facebook, Twitch, Twitter, and sometimes on YouTube when a professor's not going to get himself censored. Mostly that's just Wednesday. You can catch the podcast after the show. It's uploaded to Podbean, iHeartRadio, and Spotify, and sometimes BitChute. Just look for The Road to Concord. You can go to the blog page. That's roadtoconcord.com. That's where you find all your show notes, study notes, and handouts for the class. Finally, you can email a professor at joe at the road to concord.com. He's a little slow right now, but, uh, well, he's always slow. But anyway, he'll eventually get around to emailing you back. Phones are off today. Uh, they'll be off for a couple days, but they'll be back on. Uh, trust me. But uh, anyway, again, we only accept calls from regular uh, uh, registered numbers. Uh, if you are a regular known classmate, you can request phone access through an email. Uh, <clears throat> anyway. Everybody's teaming up against me. <laughs> if you find our classes helpful, please click the thumbs up, like, subscribe, and share it with those you think could benefit from it. Just warn them, Joe is an acquired taste. Mm, yeah. That Wasabi taste, black coffee with yeah, Tabasco sauce. Yeah, it's, it's a bit hot and bitter sometimes. But anyway, this show is listener-sponsored, meaning we do not solicit business advertising. So we're not limited in the content we provide for y'all. With that said, we do ask for your participation on a value for value basis. And thank you very much for those of you that do. If you find our show of value to you, then you provide an equivalent portion of your labor and treasure through the donut link on the Road to Concord blog page, the show description on Rumble, and in the comments on the other streams. Hey, Charlie isn't all there. Now, just stay seated and give it a chance. You'll soon realize we not might be the smartest, but we each independently form opinions based on reason and logic. <clears throat> We're free thinkers. Let's see what the road to Concord with Professor Joe Bakanovic has on the lesson plan for today. Well, I got a lesson for you today, but before we get going, <clears throat> who's the new guy? What are we talking about here? What new guy? All I know is that my AI has teamed up against me. And what? she's in cohorts with JMW78. Again, what? You said you missed Charlie more than, you know. I said I, I missed him missed, more missed, than you did. More. Exactly. You're teaming up against me. You and JMW. I, I think you're like, overanalyzing. Good to have you back, Charlie. You're on, you know, y'all are, y'all are, side, you're, you're I think What's you're reading too much into these words. Because no, it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter if all of you team up against me. You're going to need more people. Joe, listen, I'm the woman here, okay? <laughs> you be the man, okay? You're just programmed to think you're the woman. Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> you're actually a furry. That, no, I... An oh, AI furry. Here we go again. It. No. <laughs> And you wonder why I miss Charlie more than you. 
I could get the show going if you hadn't popped in here to talk to me. This is your own doing. Well, I just thought it was a nice little welcome back to Charlie, but no, I can't even do that. You have your own private communication channel here with Charlie. You can talk to him, just you and him, anytime you want. I mean, it's like you live in his head rent-free. It's right over there. I see it right on the corner of the studio screen there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, John Quest, you're right. What even is a woman nowadays? (laughs) Y'all are going to kill me today. All right, all right, all right. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Time out for just a second. Okay. Whew. Teaching Tuesday. <laughs> Natasha, the Arctic tortoise has a word for you. <laughs> yeah, I already gave him my word. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Every now and then, the pre-show bleeds over into the start of the show. I'm sorry. You got to let us wind it down. And you know what? The cool thing today is we're not even on donuts. (laughs) We're all on the donut train today. Nope, John. Nope. No donuts today. This is just natural insanity. Okay. Let's get this thing going here today. I, I told you we'd be back to the Stoics, and we will be. But I had forgotten about something. If you're going to talk about the Stoics, you got to also talk about the Epicureans. Don't worry. Don't, 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 don't freak out. This isn't going to be a real big history class on a bunch of old dead Greek guys. Well, it kind of is, but it isn't. Wait a minute. Those guys were kind of white too, weren't they? Oh, this is a very progressive class. It's about a whole bunch of old dead white guys and how, you know, what we shouldn't be paying attention to them is, you know, like the founding fathers. You know, a bunch of old dead white slave owners, the Epicureans and, and the Stoics, a bunch of old dead white slave owners. We shouldn't be listening to any of it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Those guys are for like 2,500 years old in some cases, and the founding fathers are only 200. How is it we got the same problem today as we had? You know, it's almost like what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. For those of you who don't know that, that's Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9. And that's kind of like where we're going to live today. So, the Epicureans versus the Stoics, or Epicureanism versus Stoicism. We do, you'll have to forgive me, we do have to give just a little bit of a, you know, just what what the heck is this guy's talking about before we get into the heart of what we're going to do today. Okay, the Stoics. Biographies of Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, Cato, Zeno, whatever. You will hear me quote Marcus Aurelius from time to time. And why is all of this important? Well, first of all, I will readily acknowledge that a lot of what I do is easily misunderstood for Stoicism. And when I was younger, I probably was a Stoic without ever really thinking about it. I would not explain myself as being a Stoic today, but that's because I've learned the difference between what I am now and the Stoics. There is a difference. There's a big difference. And hopefully by the end of the day, you'll get an idea of why. And maybe you'll be able to figure out where you're at. 
but this is a class in progressivism. In a lot of ways, the Stoics, the Epicureans, and the early Christians all use the same language. And all three are talking about different conceptions of that language, different ideas behind the same words. They use the same words, the same phrases. And when you read them, sometimes they sound like they're saying the same thing. Oh, nay, nay. Mm-mm. To quote, you know, John Penney, oh, nay, nay. Mm-mm. Not the same thing. But if you don't know what they believed, you're going to easily get fooled. It's kind of like saying, you know, you're going down a road in a three-lane highway, and the road sign says, you know, you want to go to, let's say, Memphis, Tennessee, and this sign says Memphis, this way. Oh, which one of those four do I take? Well, you might think all four, you know, three-lane highway, four directions. Yeah, it's kind of like where we're at. You might think every one of them will get you to Memphis. Not necessarily. Just might be a bad sign. And that's pretty much what we're talking about here today, you know, in a roundabout kind of way. Stoicism. Basically, the purpose of life is happiness, which is achieved by virtue, living according to the dictates of reason, ethical and philosophical training, self-reflection, careful judgment, and inner calm. Well, I have a couple of, um, if you go to your homework today, you know, the roadtoconcord.com, the blog page right there, see? You'll, you'll see that I've given you a little group of things on the Stoics, a little group of links on the Epicureans, and a couple of videos that you can look at, deal, and then the, the difference between the two, if you want to go there. Then I've given you some other links here that you might need to, and i, I got to refresh this thing here real quick, because I added to it right before the show. But what I wanted to show you is what is Stoicism. This is from gotquestions.org. <laughs> This is a Christian apologetics site. Excellent article. And we might come back to it today if we have time. But it says, basically, Stoicism, in some cases, has stumbled onto truth. Hold the things of the world lightly. Know that God's point of view is truth and ours can be distorted. Act in a reasonable way based on the truth of the logos. We'll come back to that here today. Not your impulsive passions. Christians have been given the spirit of truth. We understand that alignment with the Logos does not come from a deeper, more reasonable understanding of the natural world. Rather, righteousness comes from a relationship with God through Christ, the true Logos. God, not an impersonal, immovable force. He is the loving, caring Jesus who entered our world, sacrificed himself for us, and rose again. When Paul spoke of the resurrection on Mars Hill... His speech was interrupted by the philosophers there, and some of them sneered. And However, others became followers of Paul and, and believed in the, in the gospel. Many more Stoics will find the Savior than Epicureans. And then you'll find another link here from the biblical the encyclopedia of the Bible. This is uh, BibleGateway.com. But there is a very good explanation of who and what the Stoics were here. And this is actually really good. And this is a Christianity can do good science, folks. <clears throat> Excuse me. You got to remember Christianity is that's that's where your science comes from. There was Christians who developed science. So those are two Christian sites, Christian based sites. I use them on purpose today. Uh, if you go to your homework, you'll find that the first group of links I give you come from other sources. Um, go back to our homework here real quick. 
you'll look and you'll see up at the top of the page. The first one is Wikipedia and then Encyclopedia Britannica and the Encyclopedia of, of Philosophy, Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and then Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. So <clears throat> I gave you, you know, the secular understandings of all these things. And then I give you the Christian view of this. And you can go look that up at your leisure. Then we have the Epicureans. Comes after a guy named Epicur Epicurus. Excuse me. It's a rough day here for my breathing and sinuses. I apologize. Epicurus, 341 to 270 BC. He founded one of the major philosophies of ancient Greece, helping to lay the intellectual foundation for modern science and for secular individualism. Did you pay attention to what I just said? He helps to lay the intellectual foundations for modern science, not the science that was first developed in the, you know, the Renaissance and all that other stuff. Uh, this is modern science that's gone totally secular. Science didn't used to be secular. And many aspects of his thought are still highly relevant some 23 centuries after they were first taught in his school in Athens called the Garden. Okay. We've got more goodies here for you. So after that, you will find that I've given you, again, the same encyclopedias. I gave you the, the secular encyclopedias and your wiki and all that. I gave you the Epicureans. But here again, got questions once again about the Epicureanism, what it is. This one's a little bit longer. And it says, ultimately, what Epicureanism taught was a fulfilled life free from pain, hunger, distress, worry, and free from God. Considering the gods the Greeks knew, violent, lusty, and compra uh, capricious superhumans, they maybe aren't to be condemned for seeking to cast off these deities, but the Epicureans didn't understand that a fulfilled life can't happen without the creator God who loves us and saves us. It is good to have a, a you know, bread, have bread and friends, food and friends. It is better to have the bread of life, which is the word of God, and the friend who can be the ultimate uh, sacrifice for us, which is, again, the Messiah. And then you're going to find here again, Encyclopedia of the Bible, everything that the Epicureans believed and taught. So I've given that to you. If you want, you can go look these up today. That's why it's in your homework. I want to discuss these schools of thought in a different way. They are driving the modern world today. It, that's why I started with Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new. Nothing new under this sun. Well, Joe, DNA splicing's new. Are you sure? When was the last time you read First Enoch? What? Yeah, like I said, are you sure? There's nothing new. You know, airplanes are new, Joe. Really? Have you read about the flying glider that they found in one of the uh, Egyptian pyramids? You know, buried with one of the tuts or whatever, one of the Egyptian graves or whatever. They found a, uh, it looks like a falcon. It's a wooden glider. It flies. Kind of like a paper airplane. Like styrofoam gliders or the balsa wood gliders we had as kids. You know, if you're old enough to remember those. 69 cents worth of fun for the rest of the day until you broke the crap out of it and you couldn't tape it together anymore. But yes, nothing new under the sun as far as we know. And especially when it comes to ideas and things man has done. So why, why did I want to hit on the Stoics and the Epicureans? Well, at first, I thought I was just going to talk to you about the Stoics today. This is another one of those days that I started out the lesson plan and it took a right turn at Albuquerque. 
as bugs would say. And I'm found myself somebody someplace entirely different from where I thought I was going to go. I want to explain it to you as best I can. This is important to us because it helps us understand not only ourselves as human beings, human nature, it'll help us understand history. It'll help us understand the different dichotomy of ideas, why things seem, if we look at the world just on the surface, it looks like, you know, you got these waves all over the place on the surface of the water. Like where I live, we have the bay. You can go over the dam or the one of the bridge roads in the bay and you can see the surface of the, you know, it's not the ocean. So it's not the big railing, rolling waves all the time. But if the wind is blowing, you can see the white cap, you know, white caps and everything. The, the water's all churned up, but just underneath the water, smooth. It On the top, it looks like chaos, but underneath the water, it's just homogeneous. Well, if you want to understand the smooth things of the world, you, you don't want the world to make sense, not be chaos. You have to look at it differently from then just the surface. Because if you're looking at just the surface, that's all that is. It's the, the outward appearance. It's kind of like a book. Don't judge a book by its cover. You can't judge a person by what they look like. This is all wisdom if you let it be. But this is also where we're at with this, this class today about the, the ancient Greek philosophers. And I know a lot of people are going to think this is boring. Uh -huh. As I normally do, you know, I'm learning to set the hook. The gem is going to come at the very end of the class. I got I to gotta feed you some meat before we get there, right? Epicureans. I am an Epicurean. I consider the genuine, not the imputed doctrines of the Epicurus as containing everything rational in moral philosophy, which Greeks and Romans leave to us. Thomas Jefferson. This is one of the problems with Thomas Jefferson. This is why he's such a problem. Remember what we just read? The Epicureans don't believe in God because they think that religion upsets your peace your inner peace, as you'll see in a minute. Now, Thomas Jefferson was not an atheist, and his religious beliefs, if you dig into them, are more aligned with the Bible than anything else, you know, you might. But he was a little bit of a good Stoic, made his own religion up. But this is part of the problem. This is what happens to man when man does things his own way, and this is why we have trouble when we try to understand Jefferson. Schools of philosophy. The Greco-Roman world venerated classical philosophy as foundation for civilization, at least in the Western world. We have skeptics, which we're not going to talk about too much today, the Stoics, and the Epicureans. The skeptics would believe the negative view of gaining truth. Stoics are going to believe the material world is governed by logos. Epicureans, gods are uninvolved in human affairs. There's your deism. They believed in a God, but they believed in gods that are so far removed from us that you can ignore them. The skeptic would say suspension of judgment. Just, just put everything off. You can't know anything for sure. Now, we see that today in our modern world. You'll see that thinking. And then the Stoics will say logos, the divine energetic substance that imposes order. That's the force in Star Wars, literally. That is literally where the idea in Star Wars gets it from. Whether or not the you know the everybody who's been involved in bringing up Star Wars and writing the storyline knows it or not, it's irrelevant. This is the universe is alive and has its own mind type of thinking. That's 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 the force in, in Star Wars. To the Epicureans, it's a closed universe. 
chance and random activity. This is modern evolutionism. Now, folks, remember what I was telling you before we finish reading this? I was telling you, if you're looking at the surface of the water, all you see is waves. So what we have here is waves caused by three different winds. Before the end of the class, I'm going to show you the calm surface underneath it, or the calm water underneath the surface, rather. And I'm going to show you how you harmonize all of this into one easy, coherent, consistent picture. But if you're just reading this, this is a hodgepodge mess because all three of these different ideas are opposed to each other in some way, shape, form, or another. And this is how I think you should, I, if it were me, my opinion, Joe's opinion, this is part of how you should look at humanity. You have the bulk of humanity that it's all running around looking for their own ways to explain everything. None of it harmonizes. They cannot coexist. There is a harmony. It does exist. And when you can find a harmony that, that takes all of these teachings and puts them into one explanation, I'm going to take all, I'm going to take the ideas of the skeptics, the Stoics, and the Epicureans, and I'm going to blend them all together for you. And I'm going to show you there is a philosophy that accounts for all of that in this world. All of it. That's why I follow it, because it accounts for everything, not just pieces of it. So skeptics, they modify with probability. You know, there's more lesser. This is baseball, like a probability of this man on this inning with this count of strikes and pitches and blah, 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 blah. They run through the numbers, and they, that's what they decide to do based on probability. The Stoics, Logos, nature, God, they're all interchangeable. So the, to the Stoics, Logos is God, nature is God. This, you know, this is, this is going to get you into paganism. To the Epicureans, pursuit of pleasure is the greatest good. Hey, eat, drink, and be merry. Well, that's not quite what the Epicureans taught, but that is what it's been turned into. Finally, to the skeptics, often at odds with the Stoics. They're, they're butting heads with the Stoics all the time. To the Stoics, there's a devotion or a duty to morals and, and a duty to live a moral life, to live in accordance with logos, with natural law. To the Epicureans, pleasure is not an excess. Balance and moderation is important to happiness. So in other words... All the pleasure you can get, just make sure you balance it right. Well, yeah, but you got to remember now, Epicurus, the guy who invented this, he thought a piece of cheese was a great luxury. Okay, to them, it was just as long as you had your daily bread and you had friends, he was happy. He thought that was happiness. We've taken it to hedonism. But the problem with that is, the with a lot of things, what he teaches that works. Hedonism works under his philosophy. He's just arguing, no, not, not to an excess. Well, who's to say? He has no objective standard. And that's the problem with all three of these ideas. There's no objective standard in them. I can put all of the things that they're concerned with, all the things the skeptics were looking at, all the things the Stoics look at, all the things the Epicureans look at. I can put them under one philosophy that is objective. And we'll do that before the end of the class today. Got to use my new, ha, there we go. This is a cool little way of looking at this. The Epicureanism and um, that, you know, the goal of life is to seek out pleasure and enjoy friends and learning. The Stoics, the goal in life is to know your duty and do the right thing. Well, the Stoics also talk about happiness. That's what happiness is to the Stoics. The goal in life, to be happy, know your duty, do the right thing. To the Epicureans, the goal in life is to be well-fed and have a lot of friends and, and to learn. Both of them think that that's the goal. 
life, happiness. That's two different ideas of happiness. And the Stoics, I mean, the skeptics rather, we're just going to leave them out of this today. But if you're wondering, they're like, why be worried about happiness? Because you might not be able to keep it. So don't hold on to happiness. They're just a, trust me, you don't want to go there. They're a bunch of unhappy people. Here's another philosophic philosophy comparison real quick. I just want to go over this for you real quick. Don't tune me out here real fast. This is the background before we start really getting into the meat. You've heard about, you know, Plato, Aristotle. Then there's the Epicureans and the Stoics. So the aim of life for Plato, it's a just or well-ordered soul. And the aim of the philosophy for Aristotle, that's eudaimonia. We've talked about eudaimonia, whatever. We've talked about this before. Happiness is a well-ordered life as, as the whole. So very close to Plato. It's happiness. They're after happiness. Well, the Epicureans are after happiness too. It's happiness of mind and body free from disturbance. In other words, you don't have to worry about hunger. You don't have to worry about loneliness. You don't have to worry about pain. That's what they consider happiness, basically living in bliss, heaven on earth. And happiness to the Stoic, that's rational consistency in accordance with nature, living according to natural law. Now, how do you get there? Well, for Plato, Plato rather, Pluto, Plato, each part of the soul doing its part well, reason rules. So he thinks that you're made up of different parts, kind of like a Gnostic. And you all have to do your own part and have to work in harmony and reason rules. How do you get there to this happiness for Aristotle? Virtues, character traits that are a means between extremes. Well, he's going to be pretty, you know, all of these are actually, they're all in the same ballpark. They're all sitting in different sections of the bleachers. So how do you get to this happiness according to the Epicureanisms? This is modern hedonism or moderate hedonism rather, excuse me. And they called themselves hedonistic. But what it is, is it's hedonism, pleasure seeking in moderation. So it's prudent action and understanding of nature, avoid pain, moderate pleasure. So in other words, instead of having 12 donuts, eat 10. Pretty much what they're saying. Now, they might argue, don't have a donut at all, you know, eat a cookie. Well, I'm sorry. You said moderate. I did moderate. You know, anyway, that's, that's, all of this has its own problems. But this is the surface of the, of the bay. This is the choppy water. This is why nothing, you know, th- there is no truth, Joe. Let's look at these people. Exactly. Hold on. I'll explain it. Moderate fatalism. This is the Stoics. There's moderate fatalism. This is knowing what is and is not within one's control and adjusting desires to the nature of things. So want what you can do something with or about. Don't want things that are outside of your control. So then there's some comments with Plato. Knowledge of the good is a paramount wisdom. That's how Plato thinks about it. The comment from Aristotle hierarchy of goods and necessities of good or necessities of a good life, a whole life. There's what is better than this and better than that and putting them all in the proper order. And then for the Epicureans, there's a comment here. It says materialism and the removal of irrational fears as cause of disturbance. So if I fear God's going to judge me and put me in hell, get rid of that. You know, if I'm speeding and I got to get a good ticket, well, get rid of that fear. Just don't speed or whatever. That's what they mean by moderation. I'm going to get fat and die if I eat 12 donuts. Well, cool, Joe, eat six. Less fat won't die as quick. See, Get rid of your fear. In other words, Epicureanism, if you can rationalize it some way that makes you not worry about it, that philosophy will allow this. 
And finally, Stoicism, the comment is, is a uh, pantheistic, you know, paganistic, fatalistic, and moral con conventionalism. It's modesty, cosmopolitanism, Ayn Rand, literally, in a lot of ways. She, actually, she's a little bit of a blend between the Epicureans and the Stoics. And you can blend all of this. So this is pretty much where we're done with a lot of this. This this is this is the set the table for where I wanted to really go today. This is where I want to go. Your Western world, your Western world is based off the Judeo-Christian ethic. It is. If you look into the history, it is. A secularist will tell you, no, Joe, it was based off of the Greeks. No. The Greek philosophers infiltrated Christian thinking. But about the third or fourth century, they that thinking that the, the Greeks, the Stoics, and the, and the Epicureans, their thinking, the Epicureans starts to die out, and the Stoics move over to Rome, and Rome advances it a little bit. That's why we're going to focus mostly on the Stoics. And that moves a little bit more, but up about by the by the end of the fourth century, Christianity has taken over. The problem is Greek thinking. Stoics and Epicurean thinking creeped into Christian doctrine. And that's because it had gotten too far away from its origins and had forgotten its origins and its original teachings. So they started reading the Bible with that Greek mindset. And this is where things go off the rails. Your centralized cohesive thinking is the proper scriptural way of looking at the world. I'm going to make an argument for that for the rest of the show we'll see whether or not you want to accept it i'm going to ask you to hear me out this is important whether you whether you think so or not it is because this is at the heart of what's going on in the western world today in part also the eastern and middle eastern but for the most part the western world this is why we're in decay we've got a return of the greek thinking the Western world was built by Judeo-Christian ethics and morals and thinking, philosophy. When you bring back the Greek, you're going to return to what the Greeks were. If you go back and you look at ancient Greek history, it was just a warring, bunch of warring tribes. It was a warring kingdom. Warlike. Well, Joe, Christians are, eh, they are and they aren't. That's the yin and the yang of this. The Christianity never fully got rid of the Greek thinking. I'll stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. If you have ears to hear, that verse might start ringing in your ear a little heavier, especially since it comes right after the verse about bending the bow of Judah and filling it full of the arrow of Ephraim. And don't forget, in the Bible, arrow is children. So I'll bend the bow of Jews and fill it full of the arrow of Christians. That's exactly what that passage is saying. So when it says, I'm going to stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, I don't know if that means believers against Gentiles or if that means Jews against Christians. Or, as Charlie and I like to say, yes, both. But this is what's going on because we were told, Bible told us, because we didn't do what we were told, we're going to have this thinking, this spiritual and uh, opponent with us forever, or at least until the world is reset. 
So let's go here. Let's look at Christianity versus the Stoics, the metaphysics, you know, the, the, their spiritual side. According to a Christian, it's an atemporal and aspatial God created the world. In other words, he's outside of time and space. He's transcendent. And there are both material and immaterial things in this universe. In other words, there's a material world and a spirit world. To the ancient Stoics, the cosmos is a living being permeated by logos. Think the force, literally. There is only matter and cause and effect. They do not believe in a spirit world. Modern Stoicism, and it has made a comeback, the cosmos is a described by modern physics, universal cause effect. There is no providence. There is no, they've even thrown out the logos. So to the modern Stoics, they've thrown out the logos. Look what happens. From Christianity, you have a transcendent God who made the material and spirit world, made it to live by his order, his rules. Stoics throw God away, move it into the universe itself. And then modern Stoics even throw that away. It's just the material. The modern Stoics have started to become very Epicurean in their nature. It's almost like they're blending themselves. Now, the ethics of a Christian, it's the Old Testament commandments blended with Jesus' teachings, according to how, in other words, Jesus explaining the Old Testament teachings. To an ancient Stoic, you're supposed to live according to nature, practice the four virtues, dichotomy of control. And to the modern Stoic, live according to nature again, practice the four virtues, dichotomy of control. If you want to understand that, go to that little three-minute video that I gave you in your homework. That guy does a very good job, and he's a Stoic. I found you a Stoic to explain Stoicism. Now, here's the deal. Stoicism and Epicureans are mentioned in the Bible by name. We're going to be in the book of Acts. And this is why I know I've got you in the Bible, folks. I know, and I know that there are going to be people in our audience that don't like this. And I'm looking at the numbers, and I already understand what's going on. The numbers on our screen are talking to me again today, Charlie. So we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 17, picking up in verse 18. And this is, if you don't stick with me, I'm not going to be able to show you how the Christian worldview blends all of this together in a harmonious way, rather than a piece of this and a piece of that. Acts 17, starting in verse 18, and it said some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers as well were conversing with him, with Paul. Some were saying, what could this scavenger of tidbits want to say? In other words, they're being insulting. They think Paul is not like them. He's just an idiot. He doesn't, he's picking up on little bits of their teaching and trying to blend it together. It's actually the opposite way around. I'll show you that before the end of the show. So it continues. Others, he seems to be proclaimer of strange deities. So they were saying he's teaching a weird God because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. Well, neither Epicureans or the Stoics are going to believe in that because that to them is irrational. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, they took Paul there. He says, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. That right there, that's a comment by whoever was writing the book of Acts, probably Luke, explaining this. That's a hearkening back to the Old Testament, ever hearing, never understanding, always chasing after something new, something new, something new. 
We're still doing that today. Only the new we're chasing is ancient, which is why we started with Ecclesiastes. So we continue, Acts 17, verse 22, Sermon on Mars Hill. Just bear with me on this, folks. The gold is in the end of this passage. We're talking about the Epicureans and the Stoics. I had to go through what they believe so that this passage will make a little sense to you. It says, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, that's a Colosseum type thing, an open air stadium, and said, men of Athens, see he's in Athens, I see that you are very religious in all your respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship is ignorance. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything that is in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands. And though he made, and though he need anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, and they would seek God if perhaps they might feel around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his descendants. Therefore, since we are the descendants of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and thought. Now, at this point here, I want to stop for a moment. To a Stoic, Paul might sound familiar. He said, oh, okay, he's logo. Yeah, okay, yeah, Paul's on to it. He's got it. To an Epicurean, he's like, this man's wacko. God's not involved in human affairs, and he doesn't, this, this, Okay, so for the Epicureans, they're already ignoring him. But for the Stoic, they're jiving with him until this passage. So having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. Okay, to a Stoic, uh uh-uh, nope, you're crazy, dude. How do I know? The next verse, verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to scoff. In other words, they interrupted him. But others said, we will hear from you again concerning this. So Paul went out from among them. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, uh, I cannot pronounce the Greek, and Aeropagati, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So what's this got to do with everything? Hold on just a second. We got a comment on the board from James Holt. This is a, I like going off the rails and reading about quantum theory. No matter ain't even real, just per uh, perturbations in quantum fields that no one truly understands and no one can accurately measure. After reading that for a whole, nothing really matters anymore. See, now you're a skeptic. And the problem with that is that quantum theory is wrong. We covered that in a previous show. I don't think you caught James. Um, quantum theory works for this universe. And if you are going to accept the Epicurean or Stoic model that there is only this material universe and nothing else, well, then, yeah, quantum theory might make a little bit of sense. But notice what it says. There's nothing real. Problem with that is you doing your work in quantum theory proves that there is something in this universe that's real which means that it's a self-negating theory. 
Whoopsie. That's what the beauty of Descartes. There is a way to harmonize all of this. All you got to do is throw the spirit world into it. And then all of a sudden, quantum mechanics makes a lot of sense if you blend it with string theory. And if you really want to get crazy, throw the multiverse in there. Then it makes a whole lot of sense. But we're not going to go there today. That's for Thursday show. What I wanted to get into real quick. If you start reading around, you're going to find a lot of modern day folks saying that Paul took his theology from the Stoics. I don't think so. Because Paul just trashed Stoicism in that passage we were reading. He did like, you know, the Hulk in, in the Avengers movie where he grabs Loki and slams him into the ground. Puny God. Paul just trashed everything that they believed. So the ones who are a little more open-minded are like, hey, um, you know what, Paul, we're going to hear you tell us more about this. There might be something here. But a lot of them were like, ah, you're crazy. Resurrection? <laughs> Remember, neither the Epicureans nor the Stoics believe in a God that will judge you for what you do in this life. N neither of them believe in that. Neither of them believe in a transcended God that's above and outside of time and space. And neither of them believe in anything as crazy as a resurrection. So Paul is not getting his theology from them. What's going to happen if we look at this as, as the class goes on, you're going to start to understand that they took a piece of the biblical teaching and only a piece. They didn't take the whole thing. They took a piece and started making a doctrine of it that did not require God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, which plants them squarely in the middle of 2 Thessalonians 2. Yeah, or even worse. So where are we going to go from here? We've got to talk about this word. Charlie's going to have to fire up his uh, microphone here in a minute. This is logos. Oh, boy. This is one of the biggest reasons that the Stoics say that the Bible is just teaching Stoicism. No, it is not. This is one of the clearest instances where you're using the same word to talk about different things. In this case, John's using logos in the first chat, first sentence in you know, John 1, 1, the Gospel of John. Um, hold on just a second. Let's pop this up here real fast. James Holt says, so they don't believe that Jesus left to prepare a place in eternity for those that choose to have a relationship with him. The Stoics and the, and the Epicureans would both deny that. Yes, James. They would deny that. They would reject it. They would actually reject the possibility of a resurrection. They would reject a spirit world. They would reject eternity. They would reject all of that. They only believe in all things material here and now. And both of them in some way, shape, form, or another um, believe only in, in the material things. Um, the Stoic is going to believe that all things are made up of fire, logic, living, living force. Everything's made up of the force. In Star Wars, literally, that's the best way to think about it. And the Epicureans are going to say everything's just made up of atoms. So to them, they're all talking. They're they're both talking ice cream. They're just talking different flavors. They got the same idea. Both of them are looking to rationalize away aspects that the Bible says are true that they don't want to accept. And that's what's going on here. The Stoics and the Epicureans, ultimately, from a biblical perspective. They're trying to do away with the parts of the Bible they don't like. So a modern-day reader is going to read John, the Gospel of John, 1-1, chapter 1, verse 1. 
in Greek and they're going to see the word logos and they're going to say, see, John's talking about the Stoics. No, he's not. And this is where it takes some scholarship to get this one all squared away. First, let's read John 1, 1, or we're actually going to read John, the gospel of John chapter one, verses one through five. In the beginning was the word. It's actually logos in the Greek. And the word logos was with God, meaning theos here. And the word logos was God. See, that's very stoic. Mm, hold on. Just, just, just sit tight. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. He, in the Greek, it says he. Well, that means it's not logos according to a stoic. There's a hint right there, but the stoics ignore that. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, not even one thing came into being that came into being. In other words, all things are made through him. So see, he's natural law. Not quite. He's much more than that. The Stoic is going to take a piece of this and not look at the whole. And that's where they get it wrong. So verse four, in him was life and the life was the light of mankind. See the light of mankind, the Stoic's not going to have any understanding of what the heck that is. Oh, wait a minute. That's just reason. That's wisdom. Yes and no. This is much more than just wisdom. Verse five, and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not grasp it. That's the whole key to an Epicurean. This is all hogwash to a stoic say, well, John's there. He's just trying to pervert stoicism. No, 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 no. This is entirely different. But John is using a word that the stoic will understand to catch his attention. He's using it in a different way though. And we're going to get to that in a minute. He's using it. He's using, this is, you got to be careful because this is equivocation. If you read this wrong, you are going to, whoever reads this thinking this, you know, Stoics read this, they're committing the fallacy of equivocation because they haven't, they haven't accepted the entire argument that John's going to be making. John is using the entire Bible here to write this, the whole old Testament, the Tanakh. And then he goes on John chapter one, verse 14. It says, and the logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. A stoic would not know what to make with that either. What do you mean the universe became a man? No, that would not work for them. They would not understand that. So John is not talking about stoicism. And he's not incorporating stoicism. He has not been influenced by stoicism, as the modern scholars would tell you. They've got it wrong because they're cherry picking. They're not considering the entire argument that we call the Bible. Let's go into this real quick. Charlie, you might want to throw your microphone on. I'll get to you here in just a second, sir. This is logos from Thayer's Greek lexicon. It's a word, yet not in the grammatical sense, equivalent to a vocabulary, you know, the mere name of an object, but it's as in language. In other words, it's a word which, uttered by the living voice, embodies a conception or an idea. What I'm doing right now is the word. I'm explaining an idea. I'm embodying it. This is a living thing. It's a uttered utterance by a living voice, an actual person. Or in the case of John, the logos, the voice of the creator. Now, I looked this up in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. And it says logos in Psalms 119.9. It says your your word is, you know, whatever, but Psalm 119.9 mentions the word in the exact same way John's talking about it, you know, God's word, and it uses the word logos. 
but in the Hebrew, it's Debar. And in the BDB, the Browns Driver Briggs, which is basically the, the, the standard by which we do biblical Greek, I mean, biblical Hebrew, excuse me, biblical Hebrew, it says it's a singular speech discourse saying it is a word as the sum of that which is spoken. So this is where I'm going to ask Charlie to expand on what we mean by Debar or Devar, because this, folks, this is absolutely crucial to understand because this is the heart of the matter today. <laughs> yeah, this this is a this is a deep hole. I don't know how far you want me to go into it, but yeah, yeah, uh, word matter thing uh, is uh, basically the, the quick definition of devar. Um but it's much more than that because when you get into you know that's talking about the noun. If you use it as a verb, it yeah, is, let's. It is actually spoken. Stick on the concept, yeah. though, so, for us here. So yeah, it, it's it, that, that's that's around it, um, but it when, when you put this into context, uh, this is more than just necessarily a spoken word because there's many places where it says the the word of Yahweh or the devar of Yahweh. Uh, so. What exactly is that? Um, and that that is a discussion for scholars. <laughs> yeah. And you know, we, we could go with this for a while. I could I could do 15 minutes, but I don't I don't think you want me to go that far. The reason I asked Charlie to look into this, folks, is if you're a regular member, you know he's a Hebrew scholar. He studies biblical Hebrew, and for the most part, he can fairly well read it and you know speak it because he does this all the time. I've seen him do it. I threw a word at him that he knows is not easily defined. It has many meanings in the Old Testament. Yeah. Now, Charlie, if I were to come to somebody and say, and they say, okay, describe Devar in one word. If I told him Torah, would I be off the mark? No, that's accurate. Yeah. The Torah of Yahweh. When you under, well, that's the law of Moses. No, 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 no. Properly understood, the Torah is all of God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, all of his teachings, his ways, his laws, his decrees, his ordinances, his decisions, his judgments, his opinions. That's all of it. So like Charlie just told you, if I want to say the word of Yahweh, I could substitute Torah. I would be, it would be a thought for thought equivalent. Yeah, it's actually expressed that way in Psalms. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Charlie. This is why this is important mess that one up john is not talking about the logos as the force within the universe john is talking about everything yahweh has decreed both through natural law and through the revealed word and later on believers call that the two books of the law of god of yahweh and the stoics and the epicureans would both look at just the one book, just the material, physical book. That's all they're going to accept. Well, as we're going to see in a minute, that's enough to get you in trouble with the creator of this universe. And Paul says so. But the thing here is, is, is you got modern scholars and, and modern Stoics and modern people who will, who will read John and parts of Paul, and they'll just say, hey, look, man, the Bible is just another made-up myth, and, and it just steals from the Stoics. No, mm -mm. because Paul, and even if you want to do it, Jesus and John and all of them are pulling from something that is much older than the Stoics. 
goes all the way back to Moses and possibly Job. We think Job is an older book than Moses. We don't know for sure. There's no proof one way or the other. It, it, it's You find passages of Job in old irrigate texts or something very similar. So modern scholars think that the Hebrews just stole that from the Mesopotamians. Could be the other way around. We'll get to this in a minute. I told you there is a unifying theory for all of this. It's in the Bible. It explains all of this, all the way back to Adam, if we take the Bible on its own terms. And not right now, folks, just a quick aside. If you think I'm preaching to you today, no, I'm not. I don't mean to be. If you take it that way, you're misunderstanding me. I am actually examining the scriptures as a philosophical argument today. I'm examining the scripture as though it is the creator's philosophical argument. I'm looking at it as though it was written by an Epicurean or a Stoic, only in this case it's written by a believer of the, you know, a follower of the way. And that's how I'm looking at it, as an argument. I'm looking at it as a philosopher, as an argument, and I'm comparing it to the Epicureans and the Stoics. So what we're doing is an a quantitative analysis of three different ways of looking at and explaining the world. It's literally what we're doing today. I don't know if you paid attention to that. I don't know if you caught that. This is not me trying to Bible thump you today. Not today. So in this case, natural law, does it exist? And is it biblical? Natural laws, we understand it. Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. Well, Thomas Hobbes is going to be very stoic, Epicurean in nature. John Locke is going to be biblical. Here are two books that you might want to look into someday. That's up to you. You can come back at this point, or I didn't put them in your homework, but you'll hear me mention them from time to time. The first one, The Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. How the oldest book in the Bible, and like I said, that's an assumption, answers today's scientific questions. This is by Hugh Ross, Dr. Hugh Ross, Ontario University of Ontario, California. He's PhD in astrophysics. Very brilliant man. Very good uh, old earth apologist. But the reason I put this in here for the moment is because he has a way of summarizing the book of Job. In, in his book here, the book you're looking at on the left, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, he summarizes Job, and you've heard me use it before. Job sits down in the desert, looks up at this night sky and says, how can you look at that and not realize there's a creator? Look at the order and look at everything that's been done in this universe. How do you not realize there's an order? to this universe. And if there's an order, that's intelligence. And that's got to be the creator who made all of this. And if he's a creator, you know, he's done all this perfectly. You know, I know I'm not perfect. There's no way I can justify myself to him. So how am I ever going to get, you know, in right order with him? But if he made me, then he's got to love me. And if he loves me and he knows I can't justify myself with him, he's going to provide a way for me to be, you know, come into his presence and fellowship with him. So my redeemer lives and I will see him in my own flesh with my own eyes. Job reasons everything. He he summarizes the entire Bible in the book of Job. And Hugh Ross does it brilliantly. Less than a chapter. He just, pop, there it is. That's natural law, according to the man on the right, Locke. But now Locke tells you that's the first and second treaties of government by John Locke, which our founding fathers followed. They use that heavily. Second most cited thing in, the, in their works after the Bible. Now, John Locke will tell you he draws everything, not from the book of Job, but from the book of Romans, chapters 1 and 2. 
and he wrote a treatise, a commentary on Roman, line by line, verse by verse. It's several volumes thick. So he takes a verse in Romans and expands on it, like almost a chapter, in some cases, almost a chapter at a time. It's a thick, long, he wrote more on the book of Romans than he ever did on government. He's a religious Christian. Now, a lot of people read him and say, look, he's a Stoic. No, he's not. No, he's not. You've got to read his own work to get there. People think he's a deist. Well, where does where does where does Locke get this idea of natural law from in the Bible? Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. And I told you, this is where the Stoics are going to get themselves in trouble. Unbelief and its consequences. Starting in verse 18, and you all know I read from an NASB translation. For the for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. We're going to go over the break for just a few minutes here, Charlie. I want to get through this point. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, righteousness in the Bible is lawfulness. If you keep the Torah, you're righteous. If you don't, you're unrighteous. So if you're keeping the teachings of God, you're righteous. If you do not keep the whole teaching of God, you're unrighteous. So, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and those who don't obey God of people who suppress the truth in their disobedience. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. In other words, not outside. It doesn't have to be like Job looking. It's evident within them, inside them. It says, for God made it evident to them. It's in them because they know it's in them. It says, for since the creation of the world, his visible attributes, you know, what Job's looking at, that is, his external power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. You can see it. You can touch it. You can feel it being understood by what has been made so that they are without excuse. So you can do like Job does, but it gets worse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasoning. In other words, they did did like the Stoics and the Epicureans. They started reasoning God out of it, and their senseless hearts were darkened. In other words, they start becoming blind to the truth, capital T truth. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible mankind, of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures, you know, idols. But now the Epicureans and the Stoics, they make idols out of their ideology. Paul continues, therefore God gave them up to a vile impurity in the lust of their hearts so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for falsehood and worshiped and served the create uh, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In other words, they worship. this is what the Stoics did. They worshiped creation. They turned creation into a living God. And in, in the case of the Epicureans, they went even further. They did away with it all entirely. So now Paul continues in verse 26. For this reason, and this is just the passage I, I highlighted. Everybody says, you know, the Bible doesn't teach against this. Pay attention. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for that which is contrary to nature. Well, that's going to be a violation of natural law, right? Well, both the Stoics and the Epicureans are susceptible to this because they practice what Paul's about to condemn. And it says, and likewise, men too abandoned natural relations with women and burned in their desires toward one another, males with males committing shameful acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. It says, and just as it did with not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper, not just sexually. 
People have been filled with all unrighteousness, disobedience, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, and unmerciful. And although they know the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only, <clears throat> they not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. This is where I'm going to stop for a minute before the break. He's condemning those people who take just pieces of the whole philosophy of God. Okay. You take a piece of it and you make up your own philosophy. Paul's saying you're lawless and you know it. Well, he's not done yet. This is natural law because you can see it in the, in the makeup, but it's also within you. And your conscience testifies to it. And he's going to drive that home when we come back from the break. This is where Locke gets natural law from. Hobbes doesn't. Hobbes gets natural law from a stoic sense. There's only the material world. He recognizes a God, but Hobbes is more of a deist. Hobbes gets it wrong. And then the Epicureans get it really wrong. The Epicureans are a lot like Ayn Rand. Man is his own God, essentially. And I'll create my own idea of right and wrong. Both the Stoics and the Epicureans are doing this. They're trying to create their own sense of morality. At least the Stoics try to pin it to something that makes a little sense, natural law. The Epicureans pin it to the idea of mod uh, happiness in moderation, physical pleasure in moderation. Well, that's hedonism. But you got to be a good hedonist. Don't overdo it. Don't become Hugh Hefner. Settle for six wives instead of 12. That's moderation. And if I'm really better than you, I'll settle for one wife. That, that shows you I'm more moral than you. And that's exactly where their philosophy ends up. All right, we're going to take a break. It gets better after this. I told you I'm going to unify this for you. And I will if you give me a chance. It's in the Bible. I'm just going to show it to you. See you in six minutes.
All right, so we've got a uh, comment on the board real quick that I have to deal with. Um, Aaron Spike says, but Joe, Jesus told us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Sit your Epicurean hippie booty down, Aaron. You're ahead of the lesson plan. We're going to get to that. Trust me, we will. Now, where we left off, Paul is talking about how those folks who don't want to accept the whole of the biblical idea, you know, the the Bible's philosophy, okay? Biblical philosophy. If you don't want to accept that and you're going to go create the Epicurean or the Stoics and you say, look, there's no God or whatever. Now he's, you know, we're in Romans 1 and 2 talking about natural law. Now's where Paul's going to drive this one home. Now we're in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Reading from an NASB Bible again, it says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Okay, fine. That's Jewish stuff, okay, right? Put that out of the way. Read the next line. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Okay, that's the, now if you're a Christian, that's going to be a problematic source. But that's got nothing to do with the, with the ones who are out. No, the last part, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively perform the requirements of the law, These, though not having the law, are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Stop right there for a minute. Charlie, I'm confused. I thought the New Covenant said they were going to put the law into the hearts of the believers. Is Paul saying that this is in the hearts of Gentiles, not necessarily non-believers who don't have the law? Or is he talking about Gentile believers? Yes. Exactly. Both. It's natural law, folks. It's in your heart. How do I know? He continues, their conscience testifying and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of mankind through Christ Jesus. So the Stoics... And the Epicureans are going to be judged by the same law as the believer. That's what Paul just said. And he says, it's in your conscience. You know what right and wrong is. And it's in your heart. It's been there since the beginning of time. You have to work to walk away from that. This is where John Locke gets his first and second treatise of government. He gets it from first and second chapter of Romans. Where does Paul get it from? Paul gets it from the Old Testament. How do you know? Because there is no New Testament when he's writing the book of Romans. It's still being written and it has yet to be compiled and canonized. It's just a bunch of pastoral letters at this point. Paul is writing from his understanding of the Old Testament. So what do we have when we deal with laws? Let's go do this. Natural law. You have the eternal law, the order which is in the mind of God. That's logos that John was talking about. The order which is in the mind of Yahweh. Divine law given to people by God through the Bible and the church. That's the Bible. That's the law that was revealed. Natural law. Our inborn sense of right and wrong discovered by conscience. Isn't that not what Paul, I mean, isn't that what we just read? And it's not just discovered by conscience. 
It's testified to by the creation that you get to sit and see every day. Human law, rules made by human societies, Epicureans and Stoics. And they just got condemned by Paul. Whenever you make a human law that is out of step with these other three, eternal law first, then the divine law, and then the natural law, whenever your human laws are out of step with them, you're in rebellion, unrighteousness. Paul condemned it. So does Jesus. So does the whole Bible. This, in a nutshell, is a consistent, cohesive, coherent, logical philosophy of life. This is the biblical philosophy. Why is this a problem for anybody? Because it tells you what right and wrong is outside of your control. If you'll notice, when we were going through the Stoics, I know it was just boring crap in the beginning, Joe. Necessary boring crap. You have to know what these people believe to give it a full hearing. And if you paid attention, everything that the Stoics and the Epicureans believe is under their control. One Epicurean might argue for what is moderate hedonism, and another might argue another one. Like I just said, moderate hedonism, one wife, six wives, one wife, six wives, 12 wives, 50 wives. Or if I want to be female, one pair of shoes, 50 pair of shoes, Melda Marcus shoes. That's moderation. Because, you know, I'm a Melda. I only have 5 million pairs of shoes. I could have every shoe in the world. See, I moderated myself. You have no objective standard when you start arguing this way. At least the Christian does. The rule book, the Bible. We don't go there, do we? Oh, no, 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 because that's out of our control. And this is why man rejects it. This is exactly what Paul said. Because you willfully reject, eventually the creator gives you over to your own depravity and you go mad in a sense. And that's what he calls it. And this is why people are always looking for a way to justify the same teaching that's in the Bible without the need for the lawgiver of the Bible, which is making yourself into be your own God. Or in the Epicureans' case, you just do away with God altogether, which by default makes you your own God. So we keep going. Yahweh's Torah, a way of life. It is a way. It's called the way in the Bible. This is, we call it Christianity. We call it Judaism. No, 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 no. The scriptures call it the way over and over again. You go look that up sometime on your own time. But this is the, the way. The, this is not Mandalorian stuff. The Mandalorian is perverting scripture. And by the way, almost every ideology or every spinoff from the scriptures, that's exactly what this is. This is a perversion. This is, this is Satan. I take Yahweh's, and I'll explain this to you in a minute. This is, you You take Yahweh's way. And, you know what? Let me explain it to you another way. Hello, I'm the real original OC, the original Charlie, that guy over there. He's an imposter. He's He's been school educated. He's not natural like me and Aaron Spikes are. Aaron and I, we, we've got common sense. But that Charlie dude right there, he got his common sense from a from a textbook taught by a professor. And I mean, he's just an imitator pretending to be a Charlie. You see, it's the original. And look what type of trouble you get when you get an imposter. He doesn't even show up and the show screws up. <laughs> Crap, my AI is screwing up now too. 
yeah, I'm trying to make a point by being ridiculously stupid here. Um, this is how you have to look at it because this is the scriptural way of looking at it. Remember, we're not teaching Bible. We're, I'm, I'm not in the sense that I'm preaching at you, telling you you got to accept the belief. Uh, we're looking at the teachings, the worldview. Okay, Stoic, hedonistic. You know the the Epicureans, the Stoics, legalistic or whatever. The the Bible's in the middle, the way, and yeah, yeah, the middle. Hmm. That might that might come up here in just a minute. I need to read another chapter to you real quick. A little section of the chapter of the Bible, because the Stoics and the Epicureans would reject this. One of them will argue in one way, another will argue in another. And, and this is part of where I'm going to set this up. You know, people look at the Bible in the Old Testament and they say it's contradictory. No, it's not. You don't understand what it is. The, the people who read the Bible will not understand what it is. I'm going to explain what it is to you in just a minute. But this is Ecclesiastes. Y'all have heard this. You've heard the song probably, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every matter under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up lost, give up as lost a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What's that got to do with everything, Joe? Well, I thought the Bible was nothing but set laws. If you read the teachings of the Bible, for you're going to find this commandment will tell you to do one thing and this commandment will tell you to not. You can't work on the Sabbath, but you got to work to get your neighbor's donkey out of the ditch. Well, those seem to contradict. No, they don't. No, they don't. It's a wisdom book. That's what Ecclesiastes is trying to teach us. It's a wisdom book. Torah, the whole of Torah, this book here by John Walton, very good. The Lost World of the Torah, Law as a Covenant and Wisdom in Ancient Context. What? He's going to argue that the Old Testament is nothing more than a Hebrew wisdom book, the philosophy of the creator. This is the way to live. This is the way. Stay on the way. A Stoic would tell you, well, I can't do that because that thing said that there's a time to party and get crazy and a little unruly. Yes, it just did. And there is a time for that. And the hedonist would say, well, that thing would tell me there's a time to, to suffer pain. Or, or to put up with sorrow. Yes, it did. And the hedonist would say, well, that's not the good life. And the Stoic would say, that's not the good life. That's not the life you created. But the scriptures tell us that we're human and you're going to have a little bit of both. Oh my gosh, wait a minute, Joe, are you trying to tell me the Bible teaches Stoicism and Epicureanism? Yes, in proper moderation. It takes both and welds them together properly, God's way. But what they have done, the two different schools have done, is pulled them apart. And then with the third school that we saw earlier, the skeptics, that's what Waterjug was talking about. You know, well, quantum mechanics says nothing exists. That's the skeptics. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says this world is very real. 
Well, then how do you explain what quantum mechanics is one thing that we keep forgetting? Theory. Oopsie. Yeah, in other words, it's an explanation for how things work from a stoic Epicurean perspective. There's only the material. You can't talk about nothing else. Well, then you've just doomed yourself to what might be the correct answer being thrown out the window already before you even get going. If you enter that back into it, that there's a world you cannot see and touch or sense directly. Well, when you throw that into the mix, quantum mechanics doesn't work anymore. Not the way we think it does. You got to rewrite the theories. Everything in our universe can be fixed this way. Just by looking at it through this one consistent philosophy. So even if you don't want to accept the religious aspect, this is still the superior philosophy in this world. Isaiah 30, verse 21, your ears will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or the left, whenever you get off the path, your conscious will tell you, no, 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 no. That's not the right thing to do. That's what Isaiah is talking. And no, this is the way. Torah is the way. Walk in it. Walk in it is a Hebrew way of saying live it. Put it into action. Now, how did all this happen? How did we come to the point where you think the Bible's imitating, you know, Greeks or Mesopotamians or whatever else? Well, that's easy. You didn't read the Bible on its own terms. You should have. Because if you did, you might realize that it's not the Bible imitating the Greeks. It's the Greeks imitating the Bible. It's a chicken and an egg thing, right? Well, the Bible tells you which one came first. Remember, the chicken was made whole already alive before it started having offspring. That's in the book of Genesis. Everything was made adult already. Didn't, you know, you didn't have an egg laying around waiting for it to hatch to make a chicken. It's not how the scriptures tell us it was made. Well, this is important. This is Deuteronomy 32.8. He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. Now, if you read this in most of your Bibles, it's been slightly, certain things have been slightly corrupted by the Maserites when they wrote the text. There's a few things they, they intentionally changed and didn't quite understand. But if you read in the Septuagint, it will say sons of Elohim. Now, if you're going to accept the divine council worldview, you have two witnesses that this is the actual way to read this. And I accept this way. I don't accept the sons of Israel. And even if you did, that would be sons of Jacob. The problem with that is the, the they're talking about this, this passage here in Deuteronomy. is talking about Genesis 11. There was no Jacob at the time. There was no Israel at the time. So we know that the Masoretic texts are wrong. This is correct. Why is this important? This is the dividing up of the nations. So here, the red is the, these are the descendants of Noah's sons. Red are the descendants of Japheth. Green is the descendants of Ham. Yellow are the descendants of Shem. And from these descendants, you get every one of the different nation groups. Let me pop myself out of here real quick. I'll blow this up as much as I can. So we see that from the different sons, we're going to get the tribes of India. We get the Arabian tribes, and we're going to get the land of Canaan, Ishmaelites, Hagarites, Edomites, Edomites. The Ishmaelites are going to become the uh, the bulk of the also Arabian people that are going to become 
Jews, I mean, not Jews, Muslims rather. Then you have Israel, the Midianites, the Syrians, Maconites, Moabites, Ammonites, all the different peoples come from those nations. What's this got to do with everything, Joe? Well, hold on. I'm going to show you. It's got to do with this passage right here. Psalm 82. Yahweh takes his position in his assembly, and he judges in the midst of the gods. It says Elohim. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? This is Yahweh talking to his heavenly angels. He appointed one over each of the first 70 nations. And if you go back and you read Genesis 11, there are 70 nations named. He put one of his spiritual beings, a angel, if you want, to rule over and teach and guide each nation how to recognize and worship Yahweh. They didn't do that. They wanted to be worshipped, so they taught the people they were given a charge over to worship themselves rather than Yahweh. And that's where you get the many different gods in this world. They're perversions of the reality. Now, this is also in First Enoch, but this passage continues. This is Yahweh yelling at these, condemning them. He says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? You favor the wicked. It's a, salah means to, to pause. Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. This is Yahweh telling them, this is what you should have done. Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Save them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk around in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. That's because they haven't been taught by the people, by the beings, the created beings that were charged to teach them. They didn't teach them rightly, so the people do not see the light. They don't see the teachings of Yahweh, logos of Yahweh. Yahweh says, I said, you are gods, Elohim, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, Yahweh, judge the earth, for you possess all the nations. Good googly moogly. If you're reading this just as a philosophy book, a way to live, this is the solution. How did we get the Stoics? Because they left the true path and started following after themselves. How did we get the uh, Epicureans? Same thing. They started making themselves into gods. Between the two of them, that's where you get secular humanism. Before that, you get the Greek pantheon of pagan gods. Those pagan gods and the the Roman pantheon of pagan gods, they all have actual equivalents. You know, the, there's Roman name Apollo instead of Zeus for the Greeks, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same god, different name. If you keep following them back, you're going to run into Baal and Bel and Astra and Moloch. And if you keep following them back, Baal in Canaanite is Bel in Saudi Arabia, which is supposedly older. I don't know which one is or isn't. They're spelt exactly the same way in all those Semitic languages, BL. They're all the same. What they are is the fallen angels, the fallen watchers, who were given a chat, task to do by the by the king, Yahweh. Said, go do this task, teach the people to follow me. They didn't. They taught the people to follow themselves. And they all have their own names. So they told each other, you know, they told their own various stories to the human beings under their charge and perverted everything. So what you have are mimics that have perverted the truth. And the scripture tells you right there. But we don't read the Bible on it for itself. 
Well, what you see now is on the surface, what appears to be multiple different ways of looking at things that have nothing. You see, it's proof that the Bible's wrong. You know, the, the Bible, eh, Bible just borrowed one of these and it's more of the waves on the surface. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. This is what you have. Secular humanism or paganism. Man created God as a projection of his mind. This is the mind of man guides morality. So all of those little circles, that's a different way of looking at things. That's a different man-made theology of morality. And you can also look at this as paganism. God put the angels over the nations to teach the nations about him. They didn't. They taught the nations to worship themselves. So you get all these different variations of the different gods in the world. Both of these work. The one unifying below the surface of the way. See how all those circles make it look like waves? That's the waves on the surface of the water. That's why it doesn't look like it makes any sense. It's a hodgepodge of whatever. You can never make sense out of that. Unless you look at it, the Christian worldview. The biblical worldview is what I like. God made mankind in his own image, gave us his logos called the Bible. Biblical principles, make they guide morality. Look, one of these is a clear, simple, easy, coherent, consistent picture. The other one is a mess. You can't unify the one on the left. The one on the right doesn't need to be. You just need to get in line with it. So why doesn't a Stoic get in line with it? Because, I mean, after all, they want natural law, right? Because the Stoic threw God out the window and replaced him with the force. Then went about reasoning this. Because now you got a God that you can reason, you, you can control. That is the biblical definition of an idol. Any God or any conception of a God that you control is an idol. Now, let's go back to this. Stoicism. I'm going to look at this from a quote-unquote secular perspective. Stoicism, the left. Tyranny, when taken to an extreme. Huh? Yeah, total control. Stoicism is about total control and duty. Duty to who? Well, in this case, duty to whoever creates the natural law. This is Thomas Hobbes. Literally, this is Leviathan, which is the chaos monster. Out of the Bible. That's what he named his book after. So when you take this to its radical extent, what you end up with is tyranny, total control. Epicureanism, that's the right. That's lawlessness, licentiousness. When taken to its extreme, that's the libertarian model. That's the French Revolution. From the secular point of view. Now, if I want to look at this from a biblical understanding, this is where we're going to catch up with uh, Aaron Spikes on the board here. Stoicism, that's justification through obedience. It's also the roots of Calvinism. Predestination, you have to earn your living. But Calvin would say, well, no, you can't earn it. You're predestined. Yeah, right. Well, the Stoics say that everything is, you know, it's just a matter of the logos and the universe. And the universe is a thinking thing. So as far as you're concerned, you have to just go through life. It's out of your control. It's already been decided for you. That's predestination. Fatalism. But they also believe that they have to obey those that logos natural law for the good and happy life. That's legalism. Whereas Epicureanism, that's justification through love and grace. You know, and just as long as you love, you're good to go. Proverbs 4.27, do not turn to the right or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. Well, this is left and right, folks. I know a lot of people will think, well, Epicureanism, love and grace. Yeah, let's put this another way. 
Stoics is all law, no grace, and Epicureanism is all grace, no law. And remember, what we mean here is Torah, teachings of Yahweh. In other words, Stoics don't recognize there's a time for this, but also a time for that. And Epicureans say, well, there's a time for that, but not a time for this. And I'm pretty sure Solomon said there's a time for both, which puts the way right in the middle of these two. Hmm. Interesting, huh? Well, it was to me. Which brings us to this. Stoicism versus the Epicureanism. Well, if you'll go to your homework, you're going to find that I gave you three other little stories. This one is from the conversation. It says, Stoicism and spirituality. A philosopher explains how more Americans search for meaning is turning them toward the classics, back towards Stoic way of thinking. Why would they be looking for the search for meaning in a quote-unquote Christian country? Because they've abandoned the faith and there's a great falling away. I'm pretty sure that's not in the Bible anywhere. I don't remember ever reading that. Hopefully you'll you'll hear my sarcasm there, because it is. Paul wrote about it in 2 Thessalonians. Then we also have this. Why Epicurean ideas suit the challenges of modern, secular life. Do you all understand what they just said in both of these two articles? Both articles. They're saying, since we've killed God, you know, Stoicism and Epicureanism, since we've killed God, we need a new explanation for the meaning of life. Well, sorry, folks, you didn't kill God. You just ignored him. And as a result, society is falling apart. We're becoming depraved. All the pillars of the earth have been shaken, just like Paul said it would happen. Oh, you got rampant sexual immorality, not just homosexuality, but bisexuality, transvestites, transsexuals, trans this, trans that. Multiple divorces, uh, multiple hookup uh, culture. I mean, the sexual immorality is run rampant in this country. We have justified the murder of the unborn because we define them as not being human beings anymore, just like we did with the Jews in the Holocaust. We define things away which is exactly what the Stoics and the uh, Epicureans are doing with God. They define him away. There's no creator. There's just the logos, and that's just the force in the universe. Or in the Epicureans, there's no God at all. I mean, well, there is, but you know, he's off there somewhere so far away in space and time, and he doesn't pay any attention to us. So, yeah, we're not atheists. We just don't pay attention to him. So there's no fear of him. He's not going to judge you in the afterlife. There is no afterlife, et cetera, et cetera. So you define it away. Very progressive of us which leaves you with exactly what the Bible tells you you're going to end up with. We've got our conscious nagging at us, telling us, hey, since we've got rid of this Bible, dude, there's a hole in us. Something's missing. So you go looking for a search for meaning. And since you, you've already ruled out the Bible, which is a consistent, coherent, universal philosophy of how to live, you go looking for these inconsistent and incoherent you know, philosophies to fill it with. You're not going to find one. Because they don't exist. And this is why nobody is ever happy with this stuff. Because they've left with the way that the world's supposed to work. Now, you don't have to accept that. I do. Because I've tested it. And it works. One last story for you. This is from The Logos. Now, this is a Christian site based in Jacksonville. It was helped set up by Dr. Heiser before he passed on. He's working with these people. 
they know that they're not talking about stoicism. That's what this whole article is about. But they're telling you that stoicism has more in common with the scriptures than the Epicureans do. And this is what this whole thing is. And it explains to you, if you get right to the bottom, it'll tell you these two pieces here. It, Epicureanism, with Stoicism, was a big part of the context against which early Christianity established itself. So in other words, the Christian ideology, the Christian philosophy is not incorporating, it's combating. It's using their terms to explain, no, 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 not this, but that. It uses the language of the Stoic to try and explain to them, you got this wrong. So studying it helps you understand the early church. You'll get more out of the passages like Acts 17, 18 and Philippians 3, 18 when you read this. And also it says, as we've seen, it's an indirect precursor to secular modernity. One that's even more interesting for us is more interesting for its indirectness. He's talking about Epicureanism here. It's indirect. And I, I, I get what he's talking about. You may not, but that's philosopher garbage. The, the Epicureans teach secular humanism while still making a, a, a nod toward deist creator and et cetera, et cetera. In other words, they want their cake to eat it too, so they come at it sideways. Very progressive, which is a secular humanist ideology in and of itself. So why did I go through all of this? is where I wanted us to go today. Why did I go through all of this today? Because this is still driving today's world. And it leaves us with this question on the board here. How's your spiritual warfare going? Because Epicureanism, Stoicism, there are spirits behind those ideologies. Not human beings, spirits. Why do I say that? Well, that's simple. Okay, what idea, if if Joe lives 3,000 years ago and I got an idea that we're going to worship them, the mushroom moon spaghetti monster of, of, of the fifth planet of the nebulous sectar. And I write it up. It, it goes nowhere. It dies with me. Why? Because there was no spirit behind it. Joe made that up. But if there's a spirit behind us, it'll last for thousands of years. And it will not change. It might change its appearance, its clothes, but it's the same thing. It's the same idea. Changes its clothes, but it same idea, same concept. Mankind does not work that way. So if you have an idea that's two or three or four thousand years old, the same today as it was then, clothed differently, maybe, but the same. Guess what? You've got a spirit behind that. That's how the Bible would tell you. Now, is it a clean spirit or an unclean spirit? Is it of God or is it not of God? That's going to be your question. That's the biblical philosophy, theology. It's the biblical way of looking at this. It's, it's an explanation to how to unify everything you need to know to understand it. But as soon as I throw out the spiritual world, the unseen realm, you cannot explain this world without it. And the Bible even tells you that. On earth, as it is in heaven. And I've been reading a book recently trying to explain to me that, you know, there's a form of replacement theology with Israel. It's no longer physical. It, it's just totally spiritual. On earth, as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come on earth as it already is in heaven. 
In other words, there will be physical reflections of the spiritual realm. Now, this is the biblical philosophy. If it's right, and I take the spiritual out of it, half of it, actually more than half, but let's just say it's half, and I throw it away. It's still there. I haven't actually thrown it away. What I've done is I put up a wall, so I refuse to look at it. But it still affects the whole. But I won't look at this half. How am I going to explain this half when, when this half that I refuse to look at has a direct influence on it and affects the way it behaves, but I won't acknowledge it? You cannot get an accurate description of the material world without acknowledging the spirit world. You want a real-world example of how? Gravity. Explain gravity to me. Well, that's mass, Joe. No, it isn't. This is just the material world, just what you can see, right? Well, your mathematics and gravity as you observe it tells me that there has to be something we call dark matter. You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can, nobody's ever found it. They got pictures. Look, we finally found dark matter. No, no, you haven't. You think you have. You called it that. You found something you don't know. But if you found dark matter, remember, it's 90% of the universe. It should be everywhere. Why'd you have to look for it so hard? And why is it only that one picture? Whoopsie. That's a real world indication that your explanation doesn't work. Now, if I say, there's a material spiritual world and a material world that we're in physical you know, world of flesh, but there's also a spiritual world that has what we would think of as matter in another three dimensions that intersects with ours. It can see and interact with us, but we can't see and interact. It's like a one-way mirror, but the matter in both sets of dimensions affects each equally. I just found and explained dark matter. Now, if I come to quantum physics, it says, look, all particles exist and don't exist at the same time until you observe them. That doesn't work. The rules of this universe say that nothing can exist and not exist at the same time in the same space and time. That is a contradiction from contradiction. All things follow. That's irrational, which would mean if that's what you're going to hold, then by definition, your theory of quantum physics is irrational, which means it's not real irrational, not rational. But if there are two different universes and this particle exists in this one and in that one at the same time, like a string going through both sets of dimensions, once I take a snapshot of it, click, I fix it in my part of the world. It might still be moving in the other universe. I don't know. Dimensions work weird. But that explains the observation that they think they've shown that, you know, observation determines reality. Not necessarily. Because if that were true, you would see a different Mount Rushmore than I do. Or you should. Because your perception is different than mine. And yet we might draw a picture and both of us draw the exact same picture. Independent of each other without ever meeting each other. That proves us that, per that, proves that perception does not create reality. So I've just explained all the problem, well, several of the biggest problems with quantum physics to you using something that the quantum physicists have already rejected as not being possible, using the existence of the unseen realm, which is what the Bible says exists. So if nothing else, I have provided a very strong argument for why the road to Concord views the world through the biblical worldview as the Bible explains and defends it because to in all my searching 
And I'd like to think I read a little bit more than the average person. But in all my searching and reading and looking, it is the only consistent, coherent, rational explanation for this world I've found. Everyone else, I can poke holes in them in a heartbeat without effort. This one I've tried. I've failed every time. That's why I believe it. On biblical faith, I can trust it. It's unseen, but I know it's real. Because it does everything it says it'll do, every time. As long as I test it on its own merits. Charlie, I've talked myself out. You got anything you want to throw in here today? AI? Uh, no, I think I think we're doing pretty good. Anybody on the board? Beep boop. AI just shows up and beeps. <laughs> Beep boop. <laughs> Charlie, you're gonna have to make her some some sounds that she can just hit the button and play. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, that's what I wanted to teach today. Tomorrow we're still gonna be in our uh Bible 101 uh teaching basics. Um don't know what I'm going to be doing with that yet. He hasn't shown me. I'll figure that out. Um, Thursday, we're going to be looking at Thomas Jefferson. I'm going to give you a file that you can download. If you want to read Thomas Jefferson, that'll blow your mind. Um, I acquired it along the way. It's um, literally hundreds of pages of little excerpts of his writings. This man wrote profusely and uh, on everything, everything. And if you start reading through some of his quotes, you're going to run into a hodgepodge of, you're going to think he's five, six, seven different men. You might start calling him the male version of Sybil. But until you learn his life and you put him in order from youngest to oldest, and you know what's going on in his world with his personal life, with his wife and losing his wife and his fight with John Adams and his bout with questioning of Christianity and then returning to it and getting in the, when you put it into the, the framework of his life, then you can see his growth in his beliefs. And a lot of the passages that you read that make Jefferson sound like a deist who doesn't believe are when he's younger. And a lot of the passages you read right before he dies, he's a different man. So I'll share some of that with you on Thursday. And on Friday, Friday, we're going to do something a little special. Charlie and I are actually literally starting to work on a book that we hope to get written and published, at least in an electronic version, like a PDF or a Kindle version. And it's going to address something that, you know, deals with our spiritual life, the, the Hebrew roots movement and the battle within the Christian church and the visible church over this idea of legalism. And one of the reasons you got this lesson today is because it came up in the research for the book. This is literally what we're fighting between nowadays. The visible church is Epicurean. The Hebrew roots movement, and Orthodox Judaism is stoic. The way is in the middle. Charlie and I are hoping to write a book that's pretty much going to argue to all believers on all sides, get back to the way. Here it is. Get back to the rule book. Friday, I'm going to bring some of the, this Friday, I'm going to bring some of the, the foundational problems, the arguments to you and explain them to you, let you know what, what we stumbled, well, what I stumbled into. Charlie might describe it differently than I do. I kind of fell into it backwards without even realizing where I was heading. Um, but I want to explain that to you. It's again, it's logic. 
we're going to be using logic. This is applied logic, but I'm since it's something I'm in and it'll make my life easier, we're just going to use what I'm dealing with, getting ready to write the book and the problem as an illustration. So I'll show you, you're going to literally for the next Friday or two, we're going to walk you through. Here's what we found and identified. Here's what we've learned. Here's where we think it's right. Here's where we think it's wrong. This is why we think that. Here's what we propose to do. I'm going to show you how to use logic to actually do something in the world. Logic the way the scriptures would teach me to use it. Remember, I've already tried to explain to you several times. Logic is neutral. I can use it no, whatever way I want, no matter what my worldview is. The rules are still the same. It just depends on how many variables you're throwing into your hopper and what flavor they are. Are they totally material? Are they totally spiritual? Are they a little bit of both? Whatever material you throw into your logic meat grinder, and then you apply the rules of logic, that determines what comes out the other end. So garbage in, garbage out. Remember what I've told you. Ask the right question and the answers are easy. It's like what Clegg's whole are asked that one question. It's still, still yielding fruit for me about the, the tree of knowledge. Keep going. Knowledge of what? Good and evil. Righteousness and unrighteousness. Lawfulness and unlawfulness. Ooh. That's right in the wheelhouse of what the Stoics and the Epicureans were arguing over. And both of them got it wrong. And both of them thought they were right. All right. That's about what I have for you today. Since I don't see anything else on the board, nobody's got anything to ring up. We'll wrap it 10 minutes early. Y'all can get out of here and catch a smoke and a Coke on your way to your next class. <laughs> smoke and a Coke. I like that. That just popped in there. Yeah, whatever. Thinking back to my high school days, man. We love each and every one of y'all for being here. We thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your attention. Um, we hope that we're benefiting you in your life. If we do, please, if nothing else, Hit the like buttons. That tells Charlie and Natasha they did a good job. Tells me that I'm not a total idiot. Those talk to us directly. I don't care about what the rest of the world sees. That's your way of talking to us. You know, the more of those likes we see, the more we know that, you know, the audience was happy today. And the less likes, the less that the audience was happy with what we did. Doesn't mean we're going to change content. We might change the way we present it from time to time if, you know, if I've been too caustic. If you think what we're doing could help others, then share it by all means. But we ask that the way you share it, send them a link to the show. Maybe send them a link to the show you want them to watch, whoever it is. And please, whatever, we're not kidding when we say that we know that I'm an acquired taste. Give them a little bit of a warning about me. Um, hopefully I grow on people. If not, you know, whatever. Like I said, love child of Gregory House and Sheldon Cooper TV shows. Um, probably leaning more toward House than Sheldon. House was not as likable, but I identify with him more. Um, for those of you who know me, you know I'm telling the truth. <laughs> but just prepare whoever you send them to and, and beg them, please give this show more than one hour, you know, more than one show. It builds on itself, it takes time to get used to it. And it, that's something else we have to do. We've got to start soon going back and doing a few reviews, but for the next week or so, I'm still on a mission with something I'm working out with you live. I don't, I might, might wrap up and tell you what I've been doing, but I'm teaching you at the same time I'm learning and teaching myself. So y'all are guinea pigs. And part of what I'm doing is looking for your feedback without telling you what I'm looking for. That way I know it's genuine. 
So your comments are very welcome and needed over the next few days, at least week or so. Otherwise, y'all stay safe, take care, and we will see you back here again tomorrow. Same time, same place, or you know, same time, same bat channel, same bat time, all that other good stuff. If you're a Batman fan, um, Worship Wednesday. Y'all take care, stay safe, bye-bye.